Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Lawrence McCarran with the New Books Network and the New Books Network special series on military fiction. In this series, we're going to introduce you to some of the best authors writing military fiction today. Today, we get the opportunity to talk about my favorite part of this genre, the exploration of next big fight. These cautionary tales are not only entertaining, they serve to illuminate to a wider audience what's at stake and why in modern times we must maintain the edge. Today, I have Kevin Miller, author of Fight Fight with us. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Great to be with you. Absolutely. So uh, what I like to do is uh, open these up with uh, kind of an exploration of your background. So uh, could you give us a little bit of, uh, of your background? Yeah, I was a career naval aviator. I was a carrier pilot. I flew the, the A-7 and the F-A-18 Hornet in the 80s and 90s. Uh, lots of uh, Mediterranean and Indian Ocean deployments. Um, all roads lead to the Pentagon, and uh, I did uh, two tours there to, to wrap up my career. The last tour was in legislative affairs, and uh, and I retired with 24 years of service. That's amazing. Thank you for your service. And thank you for yours. So your time as uh, legislative affairs, did you get a good look at how we um, supply our armed forces? Yes. Yeah. It, and I really enjoyed that tour, and it was a, it was a wonderful education. Um, I, uh, my job, uh, I was the, the uh, aviation programs action officer, and my office was actually in the Pentagon, but uh, I would talk to people on Capitol Hill in the House and the Senate, uh, sometimes personal staffers in a, in a certain office, but most of the time professional staffers on the committees, uh, Senate and House Armed Services Committees, and sometimes would take them traveling. We'd go to to, uh, to Texas and see how fighters are made or uh, uh, Newport News and see how ships are made. Uh, a fascinating education in our uh, procurement programs. Uh, it's, it's sausage being made. There, there, there are challenges and, and certainly still today, probably worse than when I was there some 15 years ago. But uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. So did you find yourself making the case to the staffers about different uh, projects, why they were vital, why they uh, were priorities or were not priorities? Absolutely. Yes. You know, a, a staffer and most of the, the personal staffers in an office, let's say you know, your, your local representative and, and you'll call there and uh, they're, they're very young people will answer the phone uh, and you know, this isn't fair. You know, sometimes the, the, the person that has the military portfolio for that office ha- has a background in the military. And, and other times, zero background, but maybe their uncle served in Vietnam. And Okay, you, you get the job, you know. And so uh, they, they don't typically have a lot of background, but they're very sharp. And, and, and if you'll, you'll spend the time to talk to them about why we need to buy 24 FA-18 Echoes uh, year after year, uh, they'll they'll understand that. You know how come? Why can't we buy them all this year? Or you know, do we have to buy so many? And okay, well, this has been laid out 
program a record for for years and uh and so okay and and so anyway i, I really enjoy that aspect of the job were there any projects that you uh, kind of found some passion in um uh i that's a great question and then it uh let's see there's a uh, suppliers you know hey we we build a certain component for this type of airplane why don't we buy more of these airplanes and and so again you, you explain well uh, you know this this program or record has been going on now let's say for 10 years and this is year number nine of a 10-year program so so after next year we're not going to be buying anymore because we have what we need and now you know if you're if you're uh if your boss wants to go to the chairman and wants to go to the service secretary and, and make a case for more, then, then go ahead. But, but this is, you know, this is what I can tell you now that this program is, is coming to an end. That's, uh, a, that's a tough call to make for a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, exactly. Or, or the, the, the other thing is, uh, hey, my, we have a constituent company that makes this wonderful thing. Uh, why, don't, why doesn't the Navy you know, buy this? Um, and, and, and even sometimes the, the issues are so basic, like, okay, well, the Navy does not operate that land-based airplane that you're talking about on aircraft carriers. And, oh, okay, I, I didn't know that. And, and, and you know, you're very, you're very uh, you know, patient with people. But again, uh, good people who, who mean well, want to do the right thing, want to spend money the right way. There's so much pull. There's, there's politicians obviously want the military to buy things in their district, and, and they do. That's just the way it is. Certainly, uh, uh, military leadership wants the newest, greatest thing from industry, and and all that puts pressure on the budget, and there has to be a balance. Absolutely. So, as uh, you wrapped up your twenty-four years of service, um, where did you transition to next? Well, <laughs> I uh, when, when I was in legislative affairs on the Secretary of Navy staff, we were told, okay, you know, you guys are not lobbyists. You know, you you guys are are. Uh, you know, helping Congress with, with the Navy's budget. And oh, okay, fine. And so on the Monday morning after I retired, I became a defense lobbyist. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I found it to be quite similar uh, to, to what I was doing um, when, I was, when I was in the Navy in legislative affairs. Again, it's advocacy. You're, you're making a case. Uh, this time I, I had clients and I, I would make a case to, to, uh, to Congress. Here's, here's why it would be smart to to enter into a multi-year procurement of, of this component that'll go into these airplanes that the service is buying. And, and if you can make cases like that with, with some, some knowledge, you know, people will listen. It doesn't mean they always will fund it, but, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, one of our rights is to petition Congress for grievances. And so you make a case and then Congress makes a decision. Absolutely. So are, are there any programs uh, as you kind of, uh, get, get away from the, uh, the kind of rubber meets the road of, of lobbying Congress um, that you kind of keep your eye on to, to see if we're doing the right thing when it comes to arming our Navy. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, how, how many, uh, how many ships are we, are we going to buy? And that number, it changes all the time. Uh, you hear numbers like 315, 317, 355. Uh, and, you know, I was in the Navy in the eighties and the, the vaunted 600 ship Navy, which we almost got to. Um, so how, how much, how much sea power can the United States afford? Uh, right now, uh, there's, there's tremendous pressure to, uh, to recapitalize our, 
ballistic missile submarines, the Ohio class submarines. And, and these submarines have been around for 30 years. And, you know, you can only uh, pressurize metal so much, you know, going when, when you submerge it. So, you know, these ships have lives and they have to be replaced. And so that's what's happening right now. But there's also tremendous pressure to replace cruisers and destroyers of, you know, 1980s designs and then aircraft carriers and the, and the airplanes that fly off them. So there's 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 new training airplanes that need to be procured. It's hard. And, and uh, so, again, cases have to be made. You have to budget just like you do for your household. It, it's it's always a challenge. Absolutely. So uh, it's interesting you bring up the ballistic missile submarines, um, being that uh, my junior officer tour, um, I took a uh, the USS Rhode Island um, SSBN. 740 uh, out of the yards here in Norfolk and, uh, you know, put her through her paces to get her back up to strategic service. I mean, and that was, you know, CNO's number one availability. Uh, it, it was critical to the force um, to get that strategic asset back out there just because it's a numbers game. Um, so, uh, so kind of, you know, shifting gears a little bit as you, as you're navigating uh, your, your military service and uh, your, a defense industry work, where did, you know, becoming an author fit into that? After uh, I retired, maybe, you know, maybe the day I retired, I can't remember, but, w- but one of my friends, a guy named Dave Wood, said, uh, yeah, you should write a book. And I, I gave him a hand wave, no, oh, come on. And he said, no, you should write a book. And uh, okay, fine. So I, I, I thought about it. I thought, you know, people would, would ask me at, uh, you know, I, I had a pretty cool job, and they'd ask me at a cocktail party, okay, you know, you, you fly fighters. What is that like? And, and how do you explain that in a, in, a, in a short conversation like that? You know, you can say, well, it's really cool. Oh, yeah, I'll bet it is. But I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll, I'll write. And so anyway, I, I started writing in the, in the summer of 2005, and I, I would, you know, write 5,000 words in a burst of activity over a weekend. Then I'd put it away for months and pick it back up. And, and by the end of 2009, I, I had Raven 1. And it, it was in raw form, but I said, you know, I've got something here. I mean, this, you know, this is even more than to, to hand down to the kids what their dad did back in the day. I mean, so I, I pursued uh, some, uh, some agents. First, you got to get an agent and before you can go to HarperCollins or, or Penguin Books. And, and I was unsuccessful. I, I queried some New York agents. And uh, they, uh, they said, okay, you know, send me a chapter, send me the whole thing. And they gave me some constructive criticism. Most of them did, and I'm honored that they did. But uh, they said, okay, th- this isn't for me right now, but keep trying. And so I did. Then I, uh, I met a couple of guys. One is George Galderisi, a retired aviator like me, who is writing books for this new thing called Kindle and uh, as an independent author. And he introduced me to my publisher, Jeff Edwards, a retired Sonarman chief who had a, had a trilogy of books, and he's still a prolific author, terrific guys and great authors. And, and they got me into this. And uh, so we got Raven One edited and entered it on Kindle, and that was in the summer of 14. And it's been doing great since. All right, and Fight Fight being book three of the Raven One series. It really does uh, do do it justice when you say putting someone in the cockpit um, of that F-18. It, it, 
I can definitely see at the cocktail party having that conversation. That's, that's my goal is to, uh, um, to, to bring the reader along with me and uh, not only in, in the cockpit, but in, in the ready room and the bunk room. And then with some of my books in the, in the, in the, the four star command suite. And, uh, it, it's of interest to me, you know, as when I was on carriers, I was, I was at the end of the whip. And so decisions would come in from Washington and they'd go through all the channels down to the ready room and me and, uh, and my, uh, my squadron mates. And then we'd go off and, and execute whatever that national tasking was. And so it's, uh, it's interesting for me to, to bring that to the reader to so, okay, this is, this is what it's like, uh, when, when you're, when you're a pilot, all, all these tectonic forces, uh, again, emanating from Washington, um, international forces, and, and you have to go, you know, execute something and it, and it might be a kinetic strike or it might be just, just presence. Um, I, I, in my last two novels, I got into the, uh, what's going on at the four star level. That's also of interest. I've, you know, some exposure to it later in my career. Uh, just, okay, these are decisions that are made up here that, but again, uh, the lieutenants in the cockpits have to execute them. I really see a focus on that decision-making process coming through in the book. You, you spend a great deal of time um, talking about essentially the churn of how are these leaders, how are these uh, policy makers, effectively what they are, um, coming up to with their conclusion. What information vacuums are they in that you know kind of leads them to the conclusion? That's that fog of war. Uh, I mean, you really, I mean, you really put the the clouds in the fog of war, if you will. Uh, in this with the two separate sides having their own visions of truth um, in order to make decisions off of. Yes. And, and uh, uh, in, in, uh, in all three novels, but, but certainly in my second one, Declared Hostile and Third One Fight Fight, uh, the, the high level decision making from the enemy. And uh, I, I make my enemies human, uh, not necessarily evil, but but our enemies, you know, see the world differently, and and they're they're certainly, uh, you know, throughout history, we, we have fought enemies who are uh, who, who who are evil at, at times and, and and ruthless and savage as as we're fighting them. Uh, we can think of uh, the world wars and and, and other conflicts, um, but but again, you know, they're they're, they're people, so the, and and they have their own fears. And, and they're not omnipotent, and they're not sure what the what the crazy Americans are going to be doing, and, and, and they're they're fearful there as well. I, I think it's a it's a uh, uh, you know for me, I mean, I, I write in this genre uh, just I, to educate people that our military doesn't know everything. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, that are you know. There's known knowns and, and unknown unknowns, as, as um, Secretary Rumsfeld used to say. <laughs> and you just have to you know, do the best you can with the information you have, with what you have on hand at the time. And, and, and people think we have unlimited power. And, well, we have a lot of military power, but it certainly does have its limits. Absolutely. So you, so you say you write the book to educate. Uh, would you, uh, would you uh, say it's a cautionary tale? You know, it's a it's a good question. I, I write sure to, to educate, but uh, mostly to entertain. I mean, it's a it's it's a genre, and, and, and people buy them to be entertained. Along the way, people learn, and and international 
uh, reviewers I, that I hear from from time to time saying, hey, I, I had no idea that, uh, you know, that, that you guys spent so much time, uh, you know, briefing and planning a, a flight. I thought you just, you know, jumped in like the movies and, and off you went. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, in, in a way, it is, it is cautionary. It, it, it serves to educate, you know, in, in South America. There, there are issues in South America right now. They don't get a whole lot of press. Every now and then they do. Uh, certainly today, uh, issues in the, uh, in the Far East and uh, the South China Sea, East China Sea in particular, are absolutely in the news. And, and uh, you know, Fight Fight covers a scenario, you know, what if a spark happened and, uh, and we went into conflict? I mean, in, in real life today, we're very close to that spark. Absolutely. So the spark you chose uh, in in this book, and and uh, you know, I don't want to give it give up too much uh, to the potential readers out there uh, who haven't got a chance to pick up uh, the book yet. Um, but the the spark you chose was is a uh, very creative, and it it kind of it also illustrates the chaotic nature of any beginning of any war. The uh, the, the 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 spark that I that I chose. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll talk around this spark. Uh, in, in my research, I, I was surprised to find out that what I thought was original had already occurred and in, in recent decades. And, and, and I did not know that. Uh, so, again, the, the, uh, another adage about writing, you know, the, the difference between fiction and nonfiction is that fiction has to be believable. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> look what's going on today in the real world, and, and no one could have ever imagined all of this in, in, in recent months or, or, or years that that's happening today. And, and any fiction writer that, that had written this scenario a couple, three years ago would be, would be scoffed at. Um, Absolutely. But, but again, uh, uh, I think you touched on this earlier, that, that uh, the, the research that I've done about, uh, about the regions that I write about, about the people and the governments – the, uh, the the political forces, the economic forces, all important to uh, to how military forces use. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Absolutely. So I, I try to study um, the past with the specific goal of avoiding the catastrophes. How do we avoid these things? And something that stuck out um, as I was researching World War I uh, is... Um, Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, he has a famous quote um, that says something along the lines of uh, the next war to ravage Europe will be sparked by some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. And then, you know, June 28th, 1914, you have Archduke Ferdinand, or Ferdinand <laughs> excuse me, uh, killed in Sarajevo. And that's the start of infamous start of World War One. You know, no one would have predicted that that would have led to the first world war, one of the, you know, one of two great wars as we call them. Uh, I can only imagine what, if anything, if we ever find us, ourselves in that terrible conflict, what will have us in another, uh, a fight with China. And, and, you know, the spark that you, uh, that you chose is, is 
it, it it's it's very believable in that I could imagine reading reading that headline on CNN. Yes, um, yes. What happened in, in 1914 in, in Sarajevo? Uh, you know, I'm, you know, no one in the United States probably even even uh, saw that in any newspaper. You know, maybe maybe the New York Times, but uh, you know, someone you know living in Kansas, you know, some some farm boy in Kansas would have no clue. And then four years later, that same farm boy is at Bella Wood. You know, now the difference Absolutely. today. Is that uh, what, what's going on in the South China Sea and the militarization of the region and the economic forces uh, are all well known? And I think that right now Americans, uh, you know, regular everyday Americans, Americans that don't have uh, a background in in the, in the military are beginning to realize that they're they're hearing about it. They're hearing about these islands that are that are being built and they're, and they're being built with dredge sand on top of reefs in, in the South. I mean, you know, these are reefs they are underwater, but, uh, you know, dredge sand, you pour enough on it and now you got an island. Then if you pour enough dredge sand, you can pave a 9,000 foot runway and a uh, deep water port and thousands of people live on it. And this is what the People's Republic has been doing now throughout the past decade. Uh, and in a matter of months, they're, they're making these these islands, and again, they're with airfields and, and facilities on them. They're pretty amazing. Uh, you know, th- th- this is an issue, and, and uh, there there are, uh, you know, what does the South China Sea have? I mean, that's that's going to be the next flashpoint in in the world. I'm convinced. It's got Absolutely. it's got uh, mineral wealth underneath the seabed, and people have known that for decades. And off Malaysia, there there's oil rigs, and uh, it has. Uh, Seaborne trade routes coming up from Malacca, going all over the place. Uh, certainly to China, very important for our trade. You know, we, we have we have trading relationship with China, South Korea, Japan, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, um, and and of course in Indian Ocean, Australia, and, and India. Uh, very important waterway. Fish is a huge, huge resource. And uh, if one country is is literally bullying the others and pushing them off the waters, then you know, that, that is the type of thing that leads to conflicts. All that's happening right now. And uh, the People's um, Liberation Army Navy is as large as the United States Navy. Now, I'm not saying it's as capable, but it's as large. And its focus is in uh, the near seas, South China Sea, East China Sea, but also into the Indian Ocean, where, where China has a base in the Horn of Africa, and uh, and uh, in Seychelles, so uh, the world is changing, and the United States since World War II has had primacy of the seas. That's that's. I, I'm not sure we can say that uh, everywhere around the world right now. I mean, talking about those islands uh, that they're building up and militarizing those islands, uh, it kind of sets the stage for what um, what that conflict is going to look like, based on you know the I guess the factors at play. Um, unlike most of the, the battles, I, I think you'd probably agree that, uh, unlike most of the flashpoints around the world, this is most likely going to be a naval, uh, heavy, um, fight if that ever comes to that. Yes. Uh, sea and air battle. Um, so big people think, oh my gosh, you know, China has 1.3 billion people, 
we're, we're not going to go to war with China, are we? And, and they think of war in, in the sense of, you know, armies and, and set piece infantry. And uh, I, I don't think we're going to do that. But uh, there's, there's going to be a um, very high potential for naval and air conflict on, on, on over under the high seas. Very high potential. And uh, uh, China is ready for that. They've been uh, building their military for that. It's one uh, uh, the concept of uh, anti-access area denial that you've probably heard of to uh, to keep you know foreign navies led by the United States uh, away from their near shores um, to to, uh, to keep their trade routes safe as, as they see them. Uh, that, that's that's their focus and. Uh, our focus is the free enterprise system, free trade on, on the world's high seas and, and, uh, and keeping that open for, for the good of, of the world. And it's certainly for the good of the United States. It's in our interest to have, have free trade. Um, uh, that, that's going to lead to a conflict. Now, what uh, do you think there's a time horizon that America can continue to have an edge in that theater? Uh, based on China's continual growth and uh, advancements? Um, a great question. I think the answer to that is as long as we want to. Uh, as long as, as we as a nation want to uh, invest in, in new technologies and invest in, uh, in forward deployed forces that, that serve to deter. And, and I'm convinced that they do. Uh, but if, if, we, uh, if we pull back our forward deployed forces, and uh, and and don't uh, and don't develop um, you know research and development budgets to to uh, to counter what what we know is out there, or to uh, to hold at risk you know whatever the enemy thinks is important to them. The rest of the world sees that. It's easy for them to to calculate. Okay, maybe the United States is, is grown tired. Um, if we think that that this is expensive, then you know, losing such a conflict, maybe without even firing a shot, but then uh, being unable to freely trade uh, in, in the world economy, that is going to be a much, much greater cost. Absolutely. So you, you talk about uh, some of the threats. Um, could you uh, could you kind of expound on some of the, the specifically those in the, in the book as well, um, some of the threats as far as capabilities go that... Uh, a modern Chinese Navy um, has to employ against uh, the American Navy? Um, supersonic sea skimming cruise missiles that can la- be launched from, from ships and, and aircraft. Uh, land-launched uh, ballistic missiles like the, the, the DF-21 that, that can go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles out into the open ocean and, uh, and potentially target a ship like an aircraft carrier. And, and, and these missiles are called carrier killers. And, and people think, oh my gosh, our, our carriers are at risk and, and, they're, and they're sitting ducks. Well, okay, that, you know, th- this, this, uh, this weapon has a capability, but, uh, but we also have capabilities. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's, just, it's not that, that we're gonna be sitting ducks at all. I think we've got, got a lot of capability to deflect um, you know, incoming shots like that, and also capability to deliver our own. So, again, you know, we we want to avoid this, uh, but but if it comes, we we want to be 
ready to, to pick up the fight and, and end it quickly and, and restore the, the, the status quo. Again, our, the goal of the United States on, on the open ocean is, is not one of conquest. It's keeping the sea lanes open. Absolutely. So just mentioning open op- oceans uh, had me uh, kind of thinking about a sequence that you have in the book um, where a carrier is hiding in the ocean. I think some of the um, uh, those that are not familiar with naval combat, naval tactics, um, the idea of a carrier strike group uh, disappearing in the ocean seems kind of ludicrous. But can you talk about uh, how a carrier strike group might might uh, hide, if you will, uh, in the uh, in the ocean? The ocean, especially the Pacific Ocean, is vast, and it, the Pacific is just a mess. And so uh, an aircraft carrier, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, you can run that thing at, at full speed all day long, as long as you keep the, the shafts lubed and everything. But, um, it's not much of an exaggeration there. So that ship can move you know, well over 700 miles in any direction it wants to. And, and so it, you know, to, to find it, and then be able to, to target it and put a weapon on it. That, that's a challenge for, for anyone. Uh, the, the ships can, they, they can, uh, you know, there might be a, an oil tanker out there, you know, just plodding along at, you know, some slow speed. I don't know, you know, 10 knots, if, if that. And uh, uh, ships can, can get in right behind them and, and hide with them, hide in the open. Uh, uh, there are radars and radios and all kinds of sensors, and they can be turned off. And you can still operate uh, with, uh, w- without all those things and then, then turn them on when you need them. So it, it, it is a challenge. And, and you're right. I mean, it, uh, you, you can hide ships out there. Uh, and, and our guys practice doing that all the time. There, there has to be. Uh, I, I can. There's only a couple of examples of the, the downside of kind of turning off those radios, turning off those radars um, that you can kind of paint. And you paint a really good one. Um, I'm going to kind of give this one away a little bit, uh, but you have a, uh, an airplane that's trying to find the carrier and they are, they're low on fuel and they're trying to land. Um, how, uh, how do we kind of practice to avoid those situations? In the, when I came up to the fleet in, in the eighties, uh, we would practice this. It's, it's in, in the term is MCON emissions control. And, uh, and so you, you, you take off. From the carrier, and I'm, I'm just a just a lieutenant. Most of the time, I had I had a wingman that I could a flight lead that I could follow. Uh, you you take off, and you know where the ship is, and and you fly to do whatever mission. And then you you can navigate your way back and, and find the ship and, and land on it. And then there's other there's other ways that, that uh, when when the weather's down low, when the weather's bad, that, uh, that you can uh, you can be given uh, vectors by a third source and and uh, and then find your way home. So uh, this stuff is practiced. And, uh, and so now we get into the, the people side of the equation. I mean, you know, hardware is wonderful. We can talk about that. But uh, do, does your military have the training? Are, are they ready? Have they practiced using it? And have they practiced using it when maybe it's malfunctioning or broken? Uh, that is going to, uh, to, to set us apart from, uh, from, uh, from the potential conflict that we're talking about. Why do you say that? I, I believe that uh, that all of our units, uh, every ship, submarine, airplane, squadron, they, they go through a rigorous uh, training 
uh, workup, as we used to call it, before they go on deployment. And, uh, and it, it is very realistic. Uh, the, the most intense flying I've ever done is in Fallon, Nevada, over the, the high desert. Much, much more intense than, than actual uh, combat uh, that I experienced in, in the Middle East. So you can, you know, the, the more you, uh, you uh, sweat in peace, the less you believe in, bleed in war is, is absolutely true. And uh, I, I don't know that, uh, that all units of, uh, of a potential enemy military get that level of training. Elite units get it, but do all of them get it? And all of them will be required to fight. Because the, uh, if, if Germany's any lesson during World War II, I mean, your, your elite lim- uh, units, what happens to those in the early days of the conflicts, you know, they, they get used up essentially. Um, and so you have to, you have to rely on your reserve as the standard of training that your reserve has is what you're going to end up fighting the war with. Exactly. Yes. Now, uh, you, so you spend a lot of time and, and obviously with your background with carrier flight ops and I, I I really wanted you to, uh, if you if you could, uh, just kind of walk me through what it's like to really be in that conf, uh, a cockpit for the readers and those you know haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Um, you know, you're on the flight deck, you're about to get launched. Like, what is it? What is it like? It's uh, is uh, the ship is turning into the wind into a launch heading. You you can feel that the ship heel. Uh, Porter starboard as appropriate, and and typically uh, you might be behind a jet blast deflector, with a uh, one of your squadron mates hooked up to the catapult as the ship makes its turn. Uh, carriers like to uh, launch on the bells. It's a it's a matter of pride with the with the flight deck crew that uh, if uh, you know the, the launch is going to be at twelve hundred, so at at eight bells, you know an airplane goes off the front end and. Uh, and then you know the, the catapults are, are fed. We hear that it's called a, a, a ballet. So you know, here here I am. I'm I'm behind the jet blast deflector, and uh, and my, my buddy's up there, and he goes to full power, and then to burner, and 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 my airplane is just you know bouncing behind him with the, all the force of that exhaust, even though the jet blast deflector is uh, is blowing most of it, you know, over uh, over my head. And then, uh, bam! Away he goes, and and uh, cloud of steam, and there's a there's a human being in that cloud motioning me forward, and and uh, they'll hook me up, and, and it's just very very uh, dramatic. I, I I always felt the the, the power of, of uh, the United States Navy there. Um, in the daytime, I just couldn't believe I was getting paid for it. Uh, at night, <laughs> uh, that was a different feeling, and it was. Uh, uh, you know, you, you've been out on, on the open ocean at night, and, and it, 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 there are times when the uh, when when the ceiling is invisibility down, and it is it is just inside of a basketball black. And there's there's just you know there's some lights on the flight deck, and there, there'll be a yellow shirt with some wands, and you can't see him or her, uh, but you follow the wands, and it can be vertigo inducing, and somehow you you drop your launch bar and get hooked up and and into tension and bam, off you go into that ink bottle and you've got to, you've got to climb away. So uh, in, in fight fight, I, I touched on that aspect more. I've, I've got a character and uh, uh, who's, uh, who, who's struggling with that. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I struggled throughout my career uh, as, you know, as a commander, you know, taxiing to the cat at night. Uh, wasn't that much easier. I, I'm not, it's probably harder, frankly, 
than when I was a lieutenant and, and didn't uh, and didn't know all that much. Um, but yeah, I, and I've heard I've heard Admiral say, yeah, every time I taxied to the ballot night, it was like a career decision. You know, you don't have to do this, but okay, I will because I I like flying around here in the daytime so much. But, um, yeah, it's it's a uh, uh, it's something that's a. Uh, that we all we all live with it's all all part of the package again our ability to operate in, in those types of conditions at night uh, set us apart and that's a routine thing it's not a special thing and it does set us apart yeah something that uh oh man so uh, i hate to follow this up with something a little bit different um but i gotta ask as a submariner uh i didn't see a lot of submarines in the uh in in the in the book um and, and I, I, I might be taking a jab at that one just professionally. <laughs> speaking. Yeah, I've got, I do have a, uh, uh, um, a, a, a Chinese uh, nuclear boat in, uh, in, in fight fight. And I talk about the uncertainty of that captain and, and he's unsure of the crew. And, and I, I, I hit the aspect that we talked about earlier, you know, here, here's a, you know, okay. We're at war with the United States now. Good grief. And, and, you know, I, I've never done any of this stuff that I'm being asked to do and communications are suspect. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, a thousand miles from home. And, and, and so th- these are the types of, uh, again, human concerns and fears that, uh, that, that a Chinese submarine captain may have. But, uh, but yes, I, at, at, uh, at their core, my books are about carrier aviation and uh, that, that's uh, what I know and, and, and what I write. I, I, I do like the, the, the submarine stuff. Uh, one of my uh, brave ship authors, fellow author, a guy named John Monteith, writes some terrific submarine fiction. Oh, yeah. So the, you, you kind of mentioned the, the, the lack of confidence. Um, I think you, uh, you correctly painted in a couple different uh, scenarios in the book where uh, the Chinese leaderships are, are looking at their men, they're looking at their equipment, and they're thinking, okay, is do I really have everything I need to fight this fight? But then at the end of the day, as every uh, as most warfighters do, we make do and we attempt to execute. Uh, I, I think that's a, a, a topic that you see time and time again in military fiction, and particularly in your writing. Yes, and uh, the, the, the American four stars and, uh, and Camp Smith, uh, Makalapa Hill, Hawaii, ha- have the same fears. Do I have enough? And 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 how much? You know, how much force can I expend? How, how much losses can I take? I'm going to take losses. And and how how does the American public react to that? You know, how, and and I I asked some of my uh, some of my retired four star friends. You know, it, you know if you if you lose a destroyer, sunk. You know, and and there's going to be. Uh, uh, heavy loss of life. You know, how, how does the American public handle that? And it's going to, it's going to be a shock to the system. We haven't experienced losing a destroyer like that to enemy action since World War II. And that's just a destroyer. And which, which are very important ships, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but, but they are not considered capital ships. And, uh, but, but, you know, ships and airplanes in the scenario that, that is envisioned this part of the world are, are going to be sunk and shot down. And, and again, we, we haven't experienced that as a nation since World War II. So in, uh, in, my, in my kind of research and studying, uh, can I, I look at World War I? I? I think I look at World War I more than World War II as a template for what the next big fight will be because of 
the technological uh, advances we've had in the interwar period. From World War One, World War Two, you kind of see a lot of the same ingredients, but in stronger uh, forms. You know, you have tanks, you have uh, machine guns, you have artillery, you have planes. It's just a little bit better in every little thing. But uh, yeah, in, I, I, in I agree with that analogy. That uh, uh, it's going to be a, a a new type of warfare that that we are not accustomed to. The United States since. World War II, you know, beginning in Korea, it's been power projection. You know, we're going to fly, you know, the bridges at Tokori, we're going to fly over Korea and deliver bombs in Vietnam, in Desert Storm, and throughout the Middle East. You know, we're flying from a carrier and we're going to go hundreds of miles and and, and drop something and then come back. And we're, we're, we're pretty safe. We're pretty safe on the water. And and that's not going to be the case in, in the future, probably. So, uh, Fight, fight is a novel, you know, that talks about that. Some of those concerns. Absolutely. And I wonder, based on what you kind of you kind of brought up with your discussions, is not only the public reaction to losing a destroyer, but what is the what are the policymakers, the tacticians and strategists that are planning the war, you know, making the war plan? What is their reaction? Do we continue to commit to aggressive action? with our naval forces when they're at risk? A, a great question. And uh, we can we can think back to uh, to World War II. Uh, bad things happened. There was there was a wholesale slaughter, you know, loss of life like like, like we cannot imagine now. And so, you know, you know, every day ships, plural, were were, were sinking. And but they didn't have instant communications. I mean, there, there was there was telegraphs and there were even phones then. But but it wasn't a, a daily thing. It wasn't social media. It wasn't the media. And so a, a a ship sinks. And when when is that news released? And when it is released, you know what what what's the reaction? Well, how could you let a ship sink? Well, this is war, and you know we're 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 doing everything we can to to minimize it. But, but, you know, again, we, we know how, how the press and how social media can be now. And, and in a future conflict of this scale, that's going to be a new factor. That It's going to be uncharted territory in my view. Very much so. I can, I can only imagine uh, the backlash and effect if you have plastered all over Facebook the video of a, of a burning carrier. Uh, I mean, you, you see today... Uh, the kind of backlash we're getting um, with uh, Roosevelt and Guam, uh, kind of broaching that topic, uh, all over social media, in the press, and et cetera. Um, I can only, in, in a wartime environment, do you think that'll be different? I think that uh, we see it today. You know, you know Americans, uh, they, they see a carrier in Guam. And the, the captain, uh, uh, you know, alerted his uh, his chain of command, you know, without going into to all all the churn that's going on with it right now. And and some Americans say, well, why would the captain say that his carrier doesn't work? Well, that's not true. The the, the carrier does work, but uh, there, there there is an issue with this this COVID nineteen virus, and and uh, again, he's he's talking to his chain of command through satellite phones, and, and, and there's a lot that we don't know. But the public perception is different from, from reality. 
and and uh, you can't get away from that. And and uh, so I think that that leaders in, in a future fight are going to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, managing that. You know, and and you know, and there's going to have to be, you know, can can we, you know, let uh, the public know that we have lost this particular ship or this particular airplane, you know, but at some point we do, and we have to notify next to can, and it's going to be a really hard problem. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I know that in war gaming, uh, these commanders are, you know, that, that's going to be a factor in that in, in dealing with the media and in today's uh, modern uh, social media. When, when an airplane mishap occurs around the world, you know, within minutes it's out there. And and before you can you can you know send send the chaplain and an officer to to go and 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 knock on the family's door and deliver this terrible news, it, it's it's out there. It's a real problem, and and I'm not, I'm not sure how to how to manage it. It's a, it is a a mountain of effort that has to go into uh, to at the very least. Um, ensuring that families are, are, are notified first. I can only think of how tragic it would be to find out that you're missing a loved one based on a news report or uh, something so impersonal uh, in the, in the future. Yes. So, uh, and kind of going off of more, more morbid uh, <laughs> notes, um, something that you, you involve in the, uh, in the kind of uh, world setting is, our allies' role in the South China Sea conflict. Um, you have, uh, be it Japan, Vietnam, South Korea, Philippines, uh, they all play a role in this. Uh, what do you see um, the kind of evolving situation when it comes to our val- allies and our, our support um, that, I guess, that teetering uh, balance, if you will? Our, our relationships with, with allied uh, militaries are, are vital. They're, uh, you know, to to work uh, in concert with them on an operation is, is is a force multiplier, but but even at a minimum to have uh, you know you know basing rights, or uh, or you know if, if one of our airplanes shows up at a field or a ship in a port, they have some familiarity with uh, with you know the, the maintenance needs. Yeah, that that that's that type of stuff is huge, and so. Uh, the United States is engaged again, forward deployed, uh, working alongside these allied nations in that part of the world. Uh, the Middle East, in in the uh, Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf, whatever you prefer to call it, with uh, with the GCC nations and and, and NATO in, in Europe, without question. Uh, operating with them and, and training with them is is going to pay huge dividends. I'm reminded of a former. CNO Mike Mullen, he said he, he, he wanted a thousand ship Navy and he didn't mean a thousand American ships. He meant the, all the ships from our, our allied nations in, in NATO and, and, uh, uh, in, in Asia, um, all, all together could, could total a thousand ships, you know, working in, in, in concert for, uh, for a greater good. You know, again, what we're talking about is, is free trade, open seas. That's the goal. Absolutely. So I think I've um, close to taking up uh, enough of your time here. Uh, what I'd like to do is wrap uh, wrap up the interview with uh, kind of open the floor to you uh, to talk about your next project or any uh, any other uh, causes that you'd like to discuss. 
Sure. Uh, before our interview today, I was uh, working with a team in uh, in Europe and California on the video game for Raven One, and, and this is a, a digital combat simulation, and, and and these are these are gamers who uh, you know have have the software of, a, of the F A eighteen Hornet. And, uh, and and they fly it in, in very very realistic mode. So so uh, Raven One is being adapted for that, and uh, under development and, and should be uh, available for sale uh, this summer. Um, the uh, exciting. I'm working on uh, my next novel to be published. It's uh, with a proofreader right now. So we're doing putting the finishing touches on the Silver Waterfall, and this is going to be a historic fiction about the Battle of Midway, which is a fascinating carrier battle. And one of my friends says, you know, Midway was the day that from all other days followed for, for naval aviation. Uh, I, I'm writing it like Michael Shara wrote The Killer Angels about the Battle of Gettysburg. And so I've changed no facts. I'm using the real men who fought, again, on both sides. I think it's a fascinating look. You know, what was, what was the Japanese thinking at the same time? And uh, th- that's going to be out on June 4th. So uh, look, looking forward to that one. Uh, and then um, I'm, uh, I've got another novel in, in the works, so I'm, I've, I'm into three or four chapters on that one. Uh, I, I think that your, your listeners, after listening today to our, our discussion about, uh, about naval issues, should they have an interest? The Navy League is, is a good organization that, that I'm part of. Um, I'm on the board of directors of my local chapter. Uh, to, to, to give the public an idea of the importance of the sea services, the uh, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and Merchant Marine that, that we depend on, you know, the merchant ships to, to get our stuff across uh, the oceans and uh, as we trade globally again, which is a good thing. So uh, consider joining the Navy League and, and learning about these issues. Absolutely. So one final plug uh, for the book. Um, again, this is Fight Fight, book three of the Raven One series uh, with Kevin Miller. Uh, where can uh, the readers get this book? Amazon. Uh, it's exclusive to Amazon. You can you can go to a bookstore and order it, uh, but uh, but Amazon uh, on uh, on Kindle, uh, Audible, or, uh, or a hardcover uh, trade paperback be delivered right to your door. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for carving out some time for us. And uh, thanks for being on the show. And uh, take care. Morris, my pleasure. All the best to you. Thank you.